Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. What I had said to you, gosh, four weeks ago now on a Wednesday night, is actually going to happen tonight. We're going to begin the book of Ecclesiastes. So you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, and <laughs> that is where we're going to begin. So the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the Old Testament as I have said to you several times, by Jewish reckoning, the Old Testament is divided up into three large categories. The word Tanakh is the nickname that is given to what we call the Old Testament. And that's basically just three letters in the Hebrew language. The T and the N and the K mean the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketavim. And that just means the law, the prophets, and the writing. Now, we've been through the law and the prophets pretty extensively. We've even looked at some of the writing, which includes the history books and also includes the poetry books. But then there is one section of the writing that is known as the wisdom literature. Classically, wisdom literature is made up of the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Proverbs. So when you heard me say that the next book we were going to look at was Ecclesiastes, that wasn't a random thing. There was actual method to my madness. It is continuing on in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. So let's talk a little bit about what wisdom is, because the Old Testament says a lot about wisdom, as do many other Middle Eastern religions, wisdom is a very big category in uh, Middle Eastern thinking and even in our current thinking, well, less and less now in our current thinking. <laughs> but as you look at Middle Eastern religion, wisdom is a very big thing, so much so that the Greeks even had a goddess of wisdom. And wisdom in the Bible, in the Old Testament, falls into a couple of different categories. The paradigms of Israel's religion are, as I said, the law and prophecy and then wisdom. And you put those three together and you kind of get Jewish-Israelite religion. Wisdom is the common way of thinking in that part of the ancient world. Wisdom is the preeminent thing. That's what people are searching for. A person is not a complete person, even if they have great athletic prowess, even if they have great riches, they're still not considered a respectable and complete person unless they can demonstrate wisdom. So wisdom is very highly prized. Wisdom is a way of viewing and approaching life that involves instructing the younger people in proper conduct and morality, and answering philosophical questions about life's meaning, like why are we here? These days, the philosophers try to answer those questions. 
the philosophers start by eliminating God from the equation, and then they try to explain why we're here and the meaning of life. But the Bible does it with God at its very center, that God is, as you know, the very beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom, biblically speaking, is rooted and grounded in the knowledge of God. But we'll talk in just a moment about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. In the Old Testament, wisdom on one level is described as being skilled in the arts or as an artisan, like a weaver. You can see things like Exodus 35, talking about the wisdom of people who are making and constructing the elements that are going to be used for the tabernacle in the wilderness. In Exodus 35, God even speaks of architects as having wisdom and goldsmiths as having wisdom. The emphasis of all of this material, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, the material subdivides into two very large rubrics. One emphasizes the theological problems of life, such as the suffering of the innocent, which we saw in the book of Job. That's the emphasis of that wisdom book. And then the meaning of life, which is really what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. What is the meaning of life? If you know the phrase, vanity of vanities, well, that comes right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, who I am convinced is Solomon, though there is some debate, he identifies himself as the son of David. It seems to be Solomonic wisdom, but there are critics, of course there's always critics, but there are critics who say that some of the language in the book speaks to a later date because it's more modern language. And there are people who point out that one of the passages we're going to see probably this evening, Solomon says that he was wiser than any of the previous rulers in Jerusalem, which has caused people to pounce on that and say, see, that means there was a lineage of kings before him, but all it really has to mean is the judges or anybody else who ruled in Jerusalem. And so I'm convinced that Solomon is the writer of the book, so the meaning of life, according to Solomon, is that everything is vain, everything is futile, everything is repetitious, everything that is has been, everything that's going to be already is or has been. If you know the phrase, there's nothing new under the sun, well, that's Ecclesiastes. So as a consequence, he comes up with only one thing that actually matters. He comes up with enjoy God. Unless you understand God in your life, then everything else in your life is vanity. In fact, the picture word that he's using that is translated vanity, emptiness, is a word for breath and blowing. And it would be like if it were storming outside right now. And I said, Kyla, run outside and change the direction of the wind by blowing at it. Well, that would be an effort in futility. We'd love to see you do it. We'd love to watch. You'd be standing outside going, <laughs> but the wind would still blow the way it was blowing. Okay, well, that's kind of the picture of this word of vanity, this idea that 
It's all wrapped up in you, in your ego, in your sense of self-worth until you're just vain. But then it also has to do with that vanity that we know of as pointless. And that would be a completely pointless thing for her to do, to stand out front and think that she could change a storm with her little breath. And so Solomon starts saying that many, many aspects of life, which he's going to delineate, that all of those aspects of life are just vain. It's just empty. And so he comes to the conclusion that there's really only one thing that possibly can matter. In chapter 12, verse 13, it's the closing admonition of the book of Ecclesiastes that's kind of implied through the whole book, actually, I think. It is, quote, to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So he's concluding that without God, life is altogether Side to side, front to back, life is pointless. It's only God that gives meaning to life. Even when I was in college and studying philosophers, once you remove God from the equation and ask questions about the purpose of life, you can't come to any reasonable, actual, provable conclusions because everything is, in fact, vain, repetitious, pointless. Only if you include God in the equation does all of this have function and purpose. So that's the the point of the book. So I began to say that these books fall into a couple of different rubrics, like why do the innocent suffer, like the book of Job, what's the meaning of life, like Ecclesiastes. Uh, Scholars sometimes call that rubric the higher or the reflective wisdom. And then the other rubric is much more practical, and that's the book of Proverbs, also written by Solomon. And where Ecclesiastes is kind of a negative book, the next couple of Wednesdays, I'm going to just bum you out entirely. And you're just going to drive home going, it's pointless. By the way, if you've ever reached the point in life where you've thought to yourself, what's the point? Well, you're you're joining the wisest men that existed because life is indeed ultimately pointless unless God is in it, unless God is giving it purpose. I have often thought that it would be very difficult to be an atheist if you believe that people exist now because they've graduated their way out of the primordial ooze until they became the particular creatures that they are right now, I've often thought how depressing that would be. What if this is, in fact, all there is to life? When you die, you go to the nothing. Well, then why wait? Let's just go to the nothing and take as many other people out with you as you can because there's, there's no punishment, there's no good, there's no bad, there's no morality, there's no point. But the book of Ecclesiastes wisely says, It is God that gives life purpose. So then Proverbs is more practical and it deals with issues that really touch all individual lives. Things like personal integrity, personal industry, uh, sexual purity, family relations. And that subcategory is known as 
lower or practical wisdom. Wisdom is really a keen insight into life and the ways of dealing with life's problems. Solomon's associated with wisdom in that very sense, that he understands that he has a deep understanding of life, what makes up life, what the point of life is, and what gives life meaning. I told you to turn to uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. This is the story of how Solomon became so wise. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Kings. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And the people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, Yahweh, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he too sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. But that's because there was no temple at the time, no place to make those sacrifices. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that there was a great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. And Solomon said, Thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David, my father, according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee. And thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this very day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in the place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people, who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people and to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of thine. So he's essentially asking for wisdom. And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked for this thing, to be able to judge, to be wise, to know good from evil, and because you have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment and to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there shall be none like you before you, nor shall there be one like you who will arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. 
And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings, and made peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. And then the next thing we read about is how wisely Solomon judged, and the reason that story is there is to show that Solomon was indeed supernaturally wise, supernaturally understanding of the human condition, the human heart and how to judge wisely. So it only makes sense then that it would be Solomon who would write a book called Ecclesiastes about wisdom. The ultimate goal of this wisdom, you can now turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, the ultimate goal of this wisdom was to build an orderly, functional society that reflected the moral requirements of God that are set forth in the Law of Moses. Even though wisdom literature doesn't put emphasis on the law of Moses, nevertheless, the law of Moses is the moral underpinning of everything that denotes wisdom. In other words, without having the law as an underpinning, as an undergirding, Solomon would have nothing that he could refer to when calling people to a level of moral behavior. There has to be some moral standard. There has to be something outside of people that we endeavor to live up to. And so the wisdom and the morality of the book of Ecclesiastes is based in the law, even though the law is not directly referred to. You get the point? And then nationally and individually, okay, uh, the law given at Mount Sinai was given to Israel nationally. It was given to them as a people group. But when it comes down to wisdom, wisdom deals more with the individual, talks about how the individual has to react, think, be moral. So it's drilling down from national rules to how the individual reacts to those rules. The rules exist, but now how should you behave, respond, react to those rules? That requires wisdom. You can know stuff. You can know what things are. You can have knowledge. I had said earlier that we were going to differentiate between knowledge and wisdom. The best example I could think of this afternoon You might know, you might have knowledge of how to work a gun. It takes wisdom to know when and whether you should keep it holstered. You get it? You can know rationally, as a bit of knowledge, you can know stuff about how people are hurt by words. It takes wisdom to use your words in such a way that you don't hurt people. So there's a difference between just knowing stuff. I know plenty of people who know stuff. They know things. They have knowledge. But they're just fools. They just don't have any wisdom at all. 
Sure, they may know stuff, they may know things, but it takes genuine wisdom in order to interact with other people and to know what's appropriate and to know what's moral, to know what's correct, and to know what to do and what not to do in any given situation. The smartest of people seem to make that mistake of saying or doing things that are just so completely inappropriate to the situation. Well, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. This idea, this concept of being wise versus being foolish runs all the way through the Bible. And as I said, the starting point for wisdom is the fear of God. You should start with fearing God. That's the very beginning of wisdom. And then going your own way and rejecting God is referred to over and over as foolishness. So again, wisdom is rooted and grounded in the understanding of God, interacting with God, and interacting with what God has said. A minute ago I said you can have knowledge and not be wise. I know people who can quote scripture, but who don't understand it. They have knowledge. They, they have Bible knowledge. They can say stuff. There was way too many heads nodding right then. But <laughs> they have knowledge of what the Bible says. They don't have the wisdom it takes to really comprehend what the Bible says. Even in the New Testament, you hear talk about wisdom. If you look at the very practical nature of the Beatitudes, that also puts them into a category of wisdom literature. Luke took note that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's in Luke 2.52. So Jesus himself, as he matured, grew in wisdom because this wisdom idea is so central to what it is to actually be God-fearing, to be Christian, to be in communion with God. Okay, so I think that pretty much says it. Now, why Ecclesiastes? Why the name Ecclesiastes? Well, the book didn't originally have a title. That title was assigned it as the Septuagint was being written. The word that you're going to see at the beginning, the words of the preacher, preacher is kind of a loose translation of the actual Hebrew word, but what it means essentially is the one who calls an assembly. So he's the one who gathers people to himself because he has something to say. So some of your translations will say the words of the teacher, some will say the preacher. And so the one who gathers an assembly in Greek is the Ecclesiastes, which is why you know words like ecclesia, which is translated the church. And I keep arguing that it should be better translated the assembly, which is why we are Grace Christian Assembly. Well, the one who calls an assembly is the, or the one who calls an ecclesia is the Ecclesiastes. And so that's why that name moved from the Greek into the English language, and that's still the title that we have for it. But it's the words of the preacher. It's the one who has this wisdom, who has something to pass on, and so he gathers people to himself because he's going to convey the wisdom that he has. 
That is why we took the time to read that Solomon had such great wisdom and that he got it directly from God. He now wants to convey the wisdom he has. He has gone through every form of life he can. He's so wealthy that he has tried the way of an Epicurean and the way of a Stoic. Do you know the difference between the Stoics and the Epicureans? It's dealing with, what do I do about my human flesh? What do I do about my cravings? What do I do about the fact that I desire, I want, I lust? The Epicurean says, well, just go for it. It's the only way you can satisfy those lusts and not have them rule over you is to just feed them. At the point where you satiate your lusts, your lusts no longer have control over you. And then the Stoic says, don't do anything. Just you know, try to ward off every lust you have, every desire you have. Keep it tamped down, and that, that maybe that way they'll no longer rule over you. And Solomon tried both those methods. And he comes to the conclusion, it's all vanity. No matter what I do, it's very similar to um, the point that Martin Luther came to that I've mentioned a few times, where Martin Luther admitted to his abbot that in his effort to be sinless, that the closer he got to that goal, the more his self-pride rose up in him, that he wasn't being sinful, and that was sin. So it was like a catch-22. It just kept going in that vicious circle of try not to sin, but then my pride kicks in because I'm not sinning. And so the same thing with the idea of human lust. No matter what you do, no matter if you try to ignore it, no matter if you try to satiate it, no matter what you do, it's still going to rule over you. And so you have to find something that will give you the power, the inspiration to not give in constantly to your lusts. And of course, his answer is not philosophy, not stoicism, not the way of the Epicurean, but in fact, God. It's having the knowledge and the fear of God that is the only way you're going to get any control over the lusts of this life. So the first part of the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of going to set the theme for what we're going to read through the next few chapters. Everything is futile. Everything is truly blowing at the wind. Everything is vanity. Everything is self-aggrandizement, as if you mean something. But because you mean nothing, because everything that ever was, is, and will be again, and people don't even remember the things that are now, therefore your self-aggrandizement is meaningless, therefore it is truly empty, it's truly vain. And he's going to put everything in that category, including your work, including your being, including everything under the sun including nature, including rivers emptying into the ocean. He says, that's just always happened, and yet the ocean's not full. It just goes on over and over and over again. He uses that as an example of the fact that everything is just repetitious and vain. So life becomes empty by that thinking. And if that is all there is to life, then life is indeed truly empty. And that is why he concludes, the 
point of life, the purpose of life, is God. Following after God, listening to what God said. Enjoying God, enjoying your work because God gave you the work to do. And recognizing that your relationship with God is what gives life purpose. All right, thus endeth the introduction. That was, in fact, all introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's see if we can get through the first chapter and then we'll call it a night. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That, again, kind of narrows down Solomon, doesn't it? Yeah. Vanity of vanities. That is the way of expressing an extreme, to say the word twice like that. Kind of like Jesus saying, verily, verily, I say to you. The same way that Jesus comes back as Lord of lords, king of kings. Well, then that's exactly what Solomon does here when he says vanity of vanities. Oh, no, it's not just vain. It's the vanity of the things that are vain. So it's really, really empty and pointless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Now he's going to go into a little more detail about all the things that are vanity. But that's his basic thesis statement right there. Everything across the board, vanity. And anything you can name, he's going to go... What's the point? There's no point to anything, he says. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work? Okay, so men are on the planet. Men do their work. They get up every day and they do the stuff that's set before them. They labor in order to eat. They labor in order to make a living. They labor because that's what humans are supposed to do ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam was there to tend the garden. The purpose of man on the planet has something to do with working while we're here on the planet, especially after Adam's sin, when we were going to eat bread by the sweat of our brow. Work is all part of it. And he says that essential element of human life, day-to-day work, what's the point? What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. That's just so basically true. There were several million people on the planet 2,000 years ago. Did you know any of them and how did they influence your life today? You could maybe name Three, (laughs) maybe four that you just happen to know the name of. You might be able to say, well, that person had something to do. Luke, there was a guy, Luke, and he wrote a book. Okay, that influenced my life. Okay, there, there. Yes, but what about the other several million? Do you know anything about that? No, okay, I don't know anything about them. But they were here. They lived lives just the same way that you're living a life now. And the same way that you think your life is really important. The way you think that your life is significant. You're really accomplishing something. The earth is somehow better just due to the fact that you're here. We all have that intrinsic egocentric sense that we, 
And we collectively at this time, in this place, this generation of people, what we're doing right now, this is really important. But you can't name something that people did 400 years ago as a generation, you know? So that's what he's saying. Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. So the planet is there, but the planet just shakes off generation after generation. And they were all here, and they all thought they were important and vital, and none of them really changed the earth at all. Except our generation because of global warming. <laughs> that, that, we're changing. No, never mind. Did I just get political on you? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises, and the sun sets, and hastening to its place there again. In other words, every day, you can go outside with the expectation that the sun's going to come up again. It may be covered by clouds, but it's still there. It's, it's coming up every day. And you know what? It always comes up in the east, and it always goes down in the west. That always happens. It's never come up in the north. It just hasn't ever happened. And the sun just keeps going up and going down and going up and going down and going up and going down until the point where it's just repetitious and pointless. That's what Solomon's getting at. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular course, the wind returns. Okay, so this is actually something that Jesus brings up when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. John 3, talking to Nicodemus. He says, the wind listeth where it will. In other words, the wind just keeps blowing. It just keeps happening. And yet you can look around the planet from top to bottom, and you won't find some industrial fan anywhere that's causing the wind to keep going. It just does. The wind just keeps blowing, and it goes north, and it goes south, and it keeps going around in an orbit. We have nothing to do with it. We don't control it. It just happens, and it happens with such repetition that it's pointless. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Rivers just keep going. They just, there's the mouth of the river where the river empties out into the sea, but then there's also a source on the other end. There's either a spring or, or a waterfall or the there's something feeding that thing that it just keeps being a river over and over again. And you know what? You'll come and go off the planet, and that river just keeps flowing. It just doesn't care that you were here. It just keeps doing its thing. You get the idea of Solomon's perspective? Everything continues the way it always has. Verse 8, all things are wearisome, which is why I said to you, if you have ever heard yourself saying, what's the point? Well, then you're very much like Solomon. At some point, Solomon, in his wisdom, looking at everything, has reached the point where he's weary of it all. And it's just kind of like, what's the point? 
of everything continuing the way it does. Man is not able to tell it. We don't have full comprehension of it. We don't know why it happened. It just does. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. In other words, and you can test this, all advertising actually works on this premise, that we desire to see more stuff. We're not satisfied with the fact that we can see, that we do see, that we have seen. We're not that interested in what we've already looked at. We want more. I want to see more. I want to see more stuff. That desire to see and to see. And he says the ear isn't filled with hearing. We keep hearing stuff. We keep taking in audio information, but we keep listening to other things and more stuff. We keep listening because we're never satisfied is the point. You never reach the point where you say, wow, that's great. I've seen enough stuff and I've heard enough stuff. I'm good. No, you always want more. I want to hear more. I want to see more. I want to participate in more stuff because I'm never satisfied. That which has been is that which will be. Okay, that's that statement of repetition. Everything that ever was is going to be again. Everything that's going to be is something that's already been. So there's just constant repetition. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? It is new. Because already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of the earlier things. That's what I said to you a little while ago. Can you think of any significant generation, people, things from 400 years ago? I've said over and over again, the only thing we've ever learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. Talk to people today. Ask them about their own history. How much real history do you think that guy knows? Since he stood up, I'm, I'm going to point at him. <laughs> How much history do you think he knows? The younger generation these days doesn't know any real history, which is why they can repeat the mistakes that have already been made. Which is why there can be a movement toward political ideas that have already been proven and failed. Amen. And then people go, well, let's try it again. Why? Because they don't remember stuff. Well, that's what Solomon is saying. There's no remembrance of the earlier things. People don't remember that. Also because we are egocentric enough to think that we matter. What we're doing matters. Our generation right now, the most important time in history, so that we believe that we're somehow changing the entire course of the planet Earth, right now, us. And so because we think we're so important, we don't give any real thought to previous generations and what they did or what they thought. We're the, we're the ones who are figuring it out for ourselves right now. There's no remembrance of the earlier things and also, of the later things which will occur, there'll be no remembrance of them. That's just a basic truism. 
Look, we here right now, as important as we think we are, don't remember the vast majority of everything that already happened, which means when we're gone and we think we've left such a huge mark, a big indelible mark on human history, the generation to come isn't going to remember us because we didn't remember the generations before us. So they're not going to remember that we were here and what we did and what we thought and what we... They're going to pave their own path the same way we think we're paving our own path. There's no remembrance of the earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. In other words, he's saying, I have the wisdom. I've been given the wisdom by God. And with that wisdom comes the desire to know and to understand human life. And that has weighed on me heavily. Because it's brought me to this point of understanding that everything is pointless. Everything is empty. Everything is vain. And that weighs on Solomon. It's crushing Solomon down so that he understands genuinely through wisdom that nothing matters. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, everything is vanity and striving after wind. There's that idea again. Striving after wind. Boxing against the wind. Yelling at the wind, trying to change the course of the wind by blowing at it. It's all just striving with the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Yes, by human reckoning. Yes, by human accounting. If something has been made crooked, in other words, if it's been made immoral, if it is less than perfect, there's no way to bring it to perfection again. There's no way to make it straight again. Which is why it is so important that God be part of our conversation when we talk about the point and meaning of life. Because God can take a crooked thing like Micah and make something straight. But after human reckoning, after human philosophy, there is no way to take a crooked thing and straighten that out again. It's already bent. It's already corrupted. It's already morally decayed. It's already no good. How do you make it good again? Well, you can't do it. But God can do it. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, you can't count zero. Zero's not a number. It's sort of a, a lack of all other numbers. So you can't count something that doesn't exist. I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed 
a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly, to know foolishness. And I realized that this is also striving against the wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So the more Solomon has come to understand about the human condition and about the repetition of the world and the way that nothing really matters, nothing affects the world. The world keeps going, the wind keeps going, the water keeps going, human beings come and go generation after generation. The more that he understood that and the more that he looked at the labor and the work the activity, the enterprise of human beings, the more he asks the question, what's the point? He's going to say later, you can work your whole life and accumulate wealth. But when you die, all of that goes to somebody else. And what if they're a fool? What if you have gathered all your wealth and then it goes to somebody who is an idiot? He says, well, this is also vanity. So since you don't know what's to come, since you don't know how many generations it's going to be before what you've accomplished in your life is completely demolished, since you don't know, then everything is indeed emptiness and vanity. And that knowledge, that recognition, that understanding was a great weight for Solomon. And it depressed him. So I am glad that he doesn't stop at the book of Ecclesiastes. And goes on to the more positive aspects of the book of Proverbs. But first we have to get through the heavy depression that will come with the book of Ecclesiastes. You had started earlier tonight talking about the atheists and his philosophies and why. That's the point. You can see that if you didn't finish his thought there that you would get into the same place. Absolutely. If you don't know the end of the book, which is why I started with the end of the book... The end of the book is God. You need God. Follow his commandments. That's where purpose is. If you don't have that, you're right. Life is genuinely emptiness. And many a atheistic philosopher has come to that conclusion. That there's just nothing. Nothing has any reason or purpose to it. And what a sad way to live that would be. But we as Bible-believing Christian people need to recognize that life here on planet Earth is, in fact, completely vacuous if it weren't for God. That's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our our health, our well-being, our mental capacity to keep going. It's all wrapped up in the fact that God is in our lives. Make sense? Yes. All right. Have I bummed you out completely? <laughs> yes, sir. The existentialist point of view, Jean Paul Sartre, yeah. is, uh, is there any reason why I should not commit suicide right now? That's what empty atheism leads to. If we're all just part of the primordial ooze, and when you die, there's nothing. No judgment, no reckoning, no, then there's no point. So why would I stay here among the pointless? 
It is only the knowledge of God that keeps me from just giving up entirely. When I feel completely at loss, you know, when I can't figure out life and I feel really depressed and stuff, and I have that sense of, I should just end it, which, let's be honest, we've all reached that point occasionally where we think enough of this life. If it weren't for the fact that I know God, then... I would reach the point that Sartre reached. Uh, enough is enough. Yeah. And why not? Yeah. Has Conrad bummed you all out now? <laughs> See, I'm going to blame Conrad for that one. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.